is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Four indictments, 90 charges. So we figure it's about time to have a consumer's guide to the cases against former President Trump. We'll go in-depth. An offer was made to the striking Hollywood writers. Now the writers are supposed to respond to that offer, maybe as soon as today. And good luck getting someone from Gen Z on the phone to talk to you. A lot of them find it a little too scary. We'll explain. But we won't talk to any of them by phone. (laughs) No, they won't call. They won't answer. We start, though, with the four indictments against former President Trump. Back with us is Norm Eisen former White House ethics czar in the Obama administration, and he was the impeachment counsel to the House Judiciary Committee from 2019 to 2020. Norm, thanks for being with us. Wonderful to be with you, Charles. Hi, Rob. So let's give uh, our listeners what we promised, which was a kind of condensed, uh, brief, but uh, maybe interesting, we hope, consumer guide to all of the charges, 90-plus, that are now against the former president of the United States. Go ahead. Uh, 91 to be exact. It starts (laughs) with the gateway drug, the 2016 election interference, paying hush money, and then fabricating documents to cover it up because another damaging sex scandal after Excess Hollywood could have ended his campaign. That's Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's 34 false document charges. Case number one. Case number two is the federal 2020 election interference case. That was just bought, brought by um, by uh, a special counsel, Jack Smith. Uh, that case uh, consists of four charges. So that's a, that's a parallel. That's what the 2016 grew into. Then we have the state case of Bonnie Willis. It's the equivalent as as to Georgia. Um, And there you have um, there you have the charges uh, that we learned about last night. Thirteen charges against Donald Trump. And then finally, um, rounding out uh, the same aspect of impunity, disrespect for the law. Donald Trump is also accused in another federal case, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, of interfering with the possession of the government's uh, documents and then interfering with the investigation of the possession of these classified documents he allegedly uh, held on to. That's another 40. Tallies up to 91. Those are the big four criminal cases, Charles. Okay, so if you could rate all these, let's go back to uh, post 9-11 when we had the color-coded terrorist warning system, right? It was red, yellow, I forget all the colors. How would you color-code these cases, these four big cases? What's at top, what is in the red danger category for Donald Trump, and (laughs) what's not quite so dangerous for him? Well, um, the, you know... You, 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 you need a more dimensional system because of the nature of the dangers here. Um, I would say that the, the, in, the most dangerous case is the Fonnie Willis case. The two federal cases are simpler cases. 
uh, but they come with an asterisk. If Donald Trump or another uh, Republican is elected, they can pardon those cases or just order DOJ to drop them. So um, the Fonnie Willis case, he doesn't have that power. Conversely, though, that's a longer case, a larger case, going to take longer to try more complicated than number four, but still very dangerous, maybe in the yellow category now. Number four is the Alvin Bragg case. Shorter jail time, also a very strong case and could result in jail, jail time of uh, from anywhere from six months to a year and a half. Again, no pardon power there. So that's how I'd rank them. And, and I wonder if you know the answer to this uh, question, Norm, because it came up. Uh, a couple of people have actually asked me this question in the past day or so. And that is that, uh, I mean, we know that the uh, Department of Justice has its kind of guideline not to uh, prosecute somebody who is uh, currently in the White House. Um, what happens if uh, Donald Trump gets reelected as president? Uh, can any of these trials actually go forward when he's in the White House? Well, it's going to pose some very interesting legal questions. Um, I wrote about this in my New York Times opinion piece, which your listeners can find today, and also a new piece, what to expect when you're expecting a Trump trial uh, on the Just Security website, this exact point. And the answer is, um, the federal cases, if it's a Republican, if Donald Trump's in the White House, he's going to stop those cases. The state cases probably can go forward. There's a constitutional debate. DOJ has no power over it. So Donald Trump will go to court to try to get the courts, ultimately the Supreme Courts, to stop it. I think he'll lose, and those cases will go forward. And you, if he wins, the Oval Office might be uh, have a cinder block walls uh, for him. But, uh, you know, the Supreme Court will ultimately decide that question. And pretty interesting if uh, if he's under house arrest in the White House. Uh, Norm Eisen, thank you so much for joining us. Former White House ethics czar in the Obama administration. Now uh, everybody has the handy consumer guide yeah. to all of the... Just need that printed up on a card. Three indictments didn't seem to, uh, I don't totally understand that, but that's okay. Uh, right now, though, three, three indictments didn't seem to hurt former President Trump in the Republican primary race. There's probably no reason to think that the fourth will hurt him either. But how come? Brian Darling is a Republican strategist. Uh, Brian, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on. So what do you think? Um, so now Mr. Trump has, what, 91 various counts against him spread out over four different indictments, two federal, two state, New York, and now the state of Georgia. Uh, as of the last sampling in terms of a poll and also the money that he was taking in, didn't seem to dent him. And in fact, in many ways, it seems to have helped him over the past few months. Is there a point at which... Even his base decides they've had enough. I don't think with Republicans that happens. I mean, he's um, superhuman in the, politically in the sense that anybody else would have probably, probably been knocked out. I mean, we think about candidates of the past and the scandals that have happened. Well, he, he just keeps motoring and pushing right through these. And, you know, he's got a strong base. He's somebody who's 
running kind of as an incumbent. I mean, he's not an incumbent, but he's running as if, as if he is an incumbent. And it's very hard to knock off an incumbent in a primary. And I think many of the candidates that are running against him are having a really hard time breaking through and trying to get through that. And one big reason is obviously his unique base, the base that he has that isn't going anywhere. You know, the political calculus is such a headache because I was thinking if I, if I were a Republican strategist, I would be looking at the fact that I'm trapped in between a rock and a hard place. Uh, can't uh, move on from Trump because they're the hardcore base. There are enough of them to create waves and make trouble for a Republican primary if Mr. Trump is not there. On the other hand, Mr. Trump winning the Republican primary, a lot of moderates uh, who might have uh, been convict, uh, convinced to vote for him in the general election uh, with all this trouble are probably not going to be there. And even running against Joe Biden, who has some very, uh, very big weaknesses on his own side, uh, could probably beat Donald Trump and maybe not be able to defeat another Republican. But you're stuck. What do you do? Yeah, it's a tough situation. I mean, obviously, with the primary, I mean, I think it's pretty much over in the sense that Donald Trump is a lock right now. I mean, he really is way ahead. But the problem comes when you get into a general election is is are these problems going to be poisoned for uh, independent voters? Are they going to flee him in droves or is his unique coalition going to pull together that brought him through in 2016 that had him winning the non-traditional Republican presidential states of Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin? So it's a it's a tough question. And, you know, obviously one thing that factors in is the fact that President Biden isn't all that popular. The economy isn't doing all that great. And it's going to be tough for him to get reelected. So you, you basically have two incumbents running against each other, which we've never seen before in the contemporary history. Do you buy the um, increasing commentary that goes along the lines of uh, the reason why Mr. Trump's base will never turn on him is because they consider uh, legal attacks on Mr. Trump as basically attacks on them and their values, and so they are never going to give that up? Yeah, I mean— I think that's part of it. I, I do think it's a, you know, if you're a rational person, you're looking at this saying, if Donald Trump wasn't running for president, would he have all these legal problems? I mean, we're seeing that expedited procedures to get these hearings and trials to go quicker. Uh, that obviously wouldn't be happening if he wasn't running for president. And you look at the charges. I mean, the charges that have just been rolled out, some would argue are political in the sense that, you know, what he did, whether it be right or wrong. And I, I was not a fan of uh, I mean, I think that the electors should have been seated. And I think that whole scheme was, was ill founded. I don't think it was a good idea. But was it illegal? I don't think so. I mean, you're getting in a situation where you're criminalizing politics, you're criminalizing aspects of the First Amendment. And I think many Americans don't feel too comfortable about that. And all we have seen are indictments, which is the best case that the prosecutions roll out. So once more facts come out, once the defense gets to put on a case, maybe things will mitigate a bit. But, you know, it's obviously going to be really an uphill struggle for Trump with regard to these legal challenges. All right, Brian uh, Darling, a Republican strategist there talking about uh, the politics of this uh, latest added to the list of indictments for Donald Trump. And still ahead, talking on the phone might be something that dies with the older generations. We'll explain that one.
Uh, right now, though, former President Trump's been hit with some RICO charges in the Georgia election case. Now, usually RICO is reserved for people like mob bosses, mafia figures. Here to explain is attorney Jeff Grell, and he wrote the book on RICO. Literally, it's called uh, Grell on RICO, a practical guide to the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, so for the layperson... Uh, they hear RICO charges against former President Trump. What precisely does that mean? It means uh, that he's basically, when you look at RICO's kind of a, a, a original context, it was meant to address, like you said, the mob bosses. And those guys, uh, uh, like the John Gottis, they didn't necessarily go out and kill anybody or extort anybody or bribe anybody or sell drugs. They operated an organization that did that. And so uh, that's essentially what RICO is targeting. It's it's those people at the top of the organizational pyramid that uh, don't engage in crime themselves, but do it through third parties. And uh, under prior laws, the federal RICO statute was passed in 1970. This indictment of uh, former President Trump is under the Georgia RICO statute. So. Uh, It's a state uh, uh, indictment, but it's very, very similar to the federal statute. And uh, it's essentially uh, going after him for operating and managing or participating in the conduct of an enterprise. And all of the other 18 defendants in the indictment are also accused of of operating or managing, participating in the in the operation of this enterprise. So. Uh, it, it's essentially trying to hold everybody liable for what everybody else did pursuant to the uh, efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Many years ago, I was sitting in the office uh, of the then U.S. attorney for the Southern District in uh, New York City, uh, talking about an upcoming RICO case, which was pretty unusual and, and novel uh, at the time. And I remember asking this particular U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York uh, whether RICO cases were fair because it seemed to be taking, as you just sort of articulated, all of these sort of, uh, you know, different acts and different things that weren't necessarily committed by the actual individuals that were named in the indictment and kind of lumped it all together and tried to get a conviction on it. And I remember this particular U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York uh, telling me with great confidence, even though it was a novel approach in those days, that that he thought it was fair and, and that I'm paraphrasing now, but that he thought that it was really the only way to for the law to get its fingers on certain people who were doing things and were up to no good that otherwise couldn't be touched. And I'm wondering if this former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York would have that same feeling now. And I'm sure uh, by now, uh, Jeff, you know who I'm talking about. Uh Sure. It's it's the most famous RICO prosecutor of all, Rudy Giuliani, who's who's a defendant in this Georgia action. Uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder how he feels about it. It's kind of a, a strange circle of life, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You go you go from using this the very effective statute against uh, more tradition. He, he's notorious for the listeners. He's notorious for using RICO, RICO to clean up the Fulton fish market in mm-hmm. Manhattan. Yeah. And 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 he, he used it in a lot of other ways when he was in Southern uh, with the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. 
And uh, that was before he became mayor. So yeah, now he finds himself on the other end of the of the stick. He's he's facing RICO charges. Um, go, going to the issue of is this fair? Uh, I, I, I think you know people who have this idea that a RICO prosecution is easy, they're just mistaken. Um, because you still have to prove that those underlying crimes were committed. And in this case, when you look at the indictment, it's a lot of uh, making false uh, statements. It's solicitation of violation of oaths by public officers, uh, impersonating public officers. Um, all of those state crimes, they're all state crimes in Georgia, have multiple elements that need to be proven. And the DA's office in Georgia will need to prove all of the elements of all of those underlying predicate acts. That's that's what we call it in the business, predicate acts or acts of racketeering, like uh, Fonnie Willis referred to last night in her press conference. So you got to prove all of those crimes like you would in a normal criminal prosecution, prove that they were committed by someone who's part of the enterprise. And then on top of that, and this is what makes RICO difficult and complex mm -hmm. and, and hard to do, you got to prove that each particular defendant uh, in, 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 in the case of this indictment in particular, uh, participate in the conduct of an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. So there's three or four other elements that you have to right. prove in addition to all of those underlying elements of the predicate act. And um, that's, that's, that's a much heavier burden on the prosecutor than just going through and proving each of these underlying crimes. You know, uh, by the one... way, by the way, Jeff, I, I, I left out one small element. Uh, what I was saying before, when I had asked years ago, uh, Mr. Giuliani, then the U.S. attorney, uh, whether or not uh, RICO prosecutions were fair before he answered in the affirmative. He smirked. Take it, well, <laughs> take it, take it how you will. It, 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 so you're you're going back into the 70s, so, and RICO is still a relatively new statute. It's it's 50 years old, right. 53 years old. But back then, it was really novel because under the old uh, rules, under the old laws, the closest thing that you had was just a traditional conspiracy charge, and and in that context, you needed to prove that the defendant uh, agreed to commit or agreed to further and facilitate the, the underlying crime, whether it was murder, extortion, bribery, whatever. And the problem with these mob bosses is that, the, is that they didn't have specific knowledge or information. They didn't want to have specific knowledge or information about particular crimes that the crime family was engaged in. They, they, they stayed back. They stayed out of all of that. And that's what made them difficult to prosecute under a traditional conspiracy theory. But, I mean, laws are either created by the courts in the case of common law or they're created by legislatures in the case of RICO. And we as a society can decide that 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 various things are illegal that previously weren't. And, and in this case, RICO was passed, making it illegal, making it criminal to simply operate and manage mm. a criminal enterprise through right. a pattern of racketeering activity. So that is, I mean, in the 1970s, that was radical and it's still kind of radical, but uh, it's the law, okay. right? And it's been yeah. around... Oh, thanks so much, uh, Attorney uh, Jeff Grell, and there explaining RICO to the layperson like myself. You're listening to KNX in Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Hollywood writers and uh, studios could meet again at the bargaining table as soon as today. The Writers Guild had said it would respond this week to an offer from the studios. Of course, if you listen to this program uh, on a podcast later, later, it could be yesterday. Right. Or it, last week. Like a little time machine. Yeah. So it depends. Everything is relevant. Time is relevant. Hello, future. Relative, I should say. It's relevant, too. <laughs> Now, the writers' uh, strike is now more than 100 days old. 
Uh, Sal Cayeros is a writer and producer whose credits include Snowfall and The Good Doctor. Sal, thanks for being with us. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So give us a sense, because we've been checking in with all kinds of people since both the SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild strike got underway. People in the industry, people out of the industry, kind of a, a checkup on how things are going. So that's my first question to you, Sal, is how are things going? Uh, well, right now, you know, they seem to be moving in the right direction. Uh, we All we wanted is for the MPTP, the studios, to get back to the negotiating table and They've gone back and now they've started negotiating and and that's what we want. That's what we want. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned earlier that maybe we could be seeing a light at the end of the tunnel here. But, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel can be one of two things. It's a way out or it might be the light of an oncoming train. Which do you think this is? Uh, That's very funny. Um, You know what? It's hard to tell. Um, I I was there for the last strike and we had a situation that was similar, which is like, oh, everything looks so hopeful. And then things fall apart. Um, so, you know, we're, we're taking things that you see in the trades with a grain of salt. Um, I'm personally, just a, as a member, I'm trying to be hopeful. But like I was at the picket line today, um, I'm not changing what I'm doing. I'm not making any other plans. Um, honestly, just taking it day by day. You know, uh, actors, of course, are in a jam. Uh, they can't really work, I suppose, unless they want to do stage uh, stuff. If they're movie or TV uh, people, they, they can't do anything at the moment. Uh, but as a writer, I guess you could, you know, when you're not on the picket line, I guess you could sit at home and pound out something on a computer just for your own you know, enjoyment or whatever. Do you do that? What do you do with your time? Uh, yeah, you know, a, lo- a lot of us uh, have talked about doing that. But what's funny is um, the mood has been just so tense and, and just a little bit. Honestly, there's quite a few of us out there that are a little bit disappointed with what's going on, obviously. So it's hard to get in that headspace. Personally, I've sat down and, and trying to work on my own material here and there. Um, but it, it, uh, writing is already a slog without such pressures on your back. So it's, it's begun so much the harder. You know, that's interesting you bring that up because, you know, I, I imagine, let's say that uh, we get lucky here, things go well for your side and the uh, studios and streamers' side, that you work out a deal you're happy with, and let's say the writers get back to work within the next couple of weeks. But you're still kind of behind because, like you say, you, tr- you try to get a little work done, but I do know there are some writers who are like, I don't even write for myself at home when there's a strike on because I don't want to give any advantage at all to the uh, studios and streamers. So there's going to be a backlog of work. How long will it take to clear that? And is that going to really nick some upcoming seasons of TV shows on linear TV, as well as delaying for yet another year some of the streaming shows? Yeah, for sure. Like the stuff that I'm working on is my own personal spec material, right? Nothing that I've worked on previously. But on on the show that I was on um, previously, um, everything has stopped. And the scripts that were supposed to be written during this time that uh, we're on strike, of course, are just sort of sitting there, not being written. So once everything gears up, if we are lucky enough for it to be, you know, sooner rather than later, uh, you know, it's it's going to take a while to to get those those gears grinding writers rooms will have to get put back together again um and and that's that's not going to be you know so easy to do so which which show is that by the way uh, i was working on a show called silo for apple uh-huh. you know i'm just addicted to that show 
<laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah. yeah thank you. Show. Yeah. It, is it hard, though? Uh, you know, the writers have been out since uh, May, right? Yeah, May. Um, yeah. Is it hard after several months? Let's say it goes on. Hopefully it doesn't. But let's say it goes on another few weeks or even, you know, another couple of months. Uh, is it hard to kind of get back into that mindset to not do your own stuff, you know, sitting at home and you kind of want to write things on spec, as you mentioned, but to get back to the grind of writing for a particular show? Um, you know, it, 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 it all really depends. What's so funny is that a lot of us are so used to being out of work. Once this is over, there's going to be some of us who are still just sitting around hoping to get that call, sending out material. Folks like myself who are fortunate enough to be working, um, uh, you know, it, it'll 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 take a couple of minutes, you know, but uh, you know, we'll we'll be able to start putting together writers' rooms and, and grinding things out. All right, Sal Calieros, thank you so much for joining us. Writer and producer credits include Snowfall and Good Doctor, and some work on Silo. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You could use a phone to talk to someone else who wasn't at the same location as yourself. Wow. Yes, it was considered, for its time, an incredible invention. Kind of like texting, but with your voice. Exactly. Weird. Yes, very odd. Well, now people seem to do everything but on the phone. Uh, younger people especially avoid the phone to talk to others. It's called phone phobia. And here to explain that is the phone lady herself, Mary Jane Copps. Uh, she's a business communications consultant. Also with us, we have uh, Dylan Bernard, who is the founder of Social Impact Communications. Now, he's 23 and a part of uh, Gen Z. Dylan, I'm going to start with you. Uh, thanks, both of you, first of all, for joining us. But Dylan, uh, you've experienced phone phobia what was that like? Yeah, and I think it's also I've been thinking about what was that like, and it's kind of for me. I kind of do a pause sometimes when I'm on the phone, and I think I was thinking about why, and it was really because I'm from a text-driven generation. I'm 23. I literally don't remember a time before I could tweet, email, or live chat. So I was raised on and by the internet for better and for worse. And I think the worst is that I'm sometimes get a little bit of a pause and don't know what to quite say. So. I've had to work through solutions to to get there. And I think the biggest thing for me has been doing it more. I'm curious, though, did that somehow transfer over, Dylan, to in-person conversations? In other words, were you uncomfortable even when you were not on a phone, but say in the same room as somebody having a, an actual discussion? I, I think it's interesting because I think the phone actually complicates it just a bit without having the visual cues um so i think for me i'm in person i can be much more personable than on the phone so i think that was one of the hardest complications around having a phone conversation is i literally feel like i'm talking into a void sometimes all right i want to bring uh, mary jean comps into the uh conversation with us uh people being afraid to speak uh, on the phone uh, a very basic part of human communication. Is this hurting us in the long term? Because I, I, I have to imagine that this radiates out uh, because I do know that uh, people who are uncomfortable in face-to-face communications, they, they prefer to communicate text-based, whatever. They don't even like talking to somebody face-to-face because they get nervous. They don't know if they're doing the right thing, standing the right way. Does this hurt us as far as human beings trying to get along with each other? 
I think it does. Um, I think that it is about conversation itself and all the things that are involved in conversation. And and Dylan, I want to commend you because one of the things that he said is that he's gotten better at it through practice. And in my work, what I've discovered um, is that talking on the phone has a lot in common with public speaking. And Seinfeld has that joke about people would rather be dead than give the eulogy because they're so afraid of public speaking. And it's that idea that we can create real fear around the phone. And yet when we have that, we're not practicing our conversation skills either. Those skills that we use face-to-face or in meetings or um, at public events where we want to speak up. Dylan, do you think your phone phobia when you were a little bit younger was sort of... uh buttressed by your friends who had the same fears and so none of you wanted to talk to each other so you just kept texting yeah i mean i literally you know when i'm away from school i was kind of texting people right <laughs> happened on the phone just to chat more so i think that just kind of accelerates you know wow i recognize as i was entering the work so I was like, I don't really know how to how to talk on the phone. So that was a really, again, through practice, I got a little bit better. Um, but that was a really like shock to me is that this core skill I didn't actually really have. Uh, Mary Jane, I've seen younger people and older people do this trick. Uh, the phone rings. You look at it, whether it's somebody you know or not, you get the same response. They say they look up at me and they say, if it's important, they'll leave a voicemail. But then you run into the people who are afraid to leave voicemails because they're they're afraid of communicating with their voice in that way. Uh, even though they were actually calling somebody, they don't want to have themselves recorded. Is this is this all part of the same phobia? It is all part of the same phobia. I mean, I started the phone lady seventeen years ago, and phone phobia existed at that time. It, it is a cataloged phobia, but the idea is that that anxiety around phone calls that fear around phone calls is increasing because um, individuals like Dylan are entering the workforce and they're discovering they don't have those skills and their employers who are older don't necessarily empathize with the fact that they don't have those skills. Dylan, um, when you uh, would reach out to a friend by text, and perhaps you had a, a a weird friend who said, I don't know, give me a call. What would you say? What would you do? Would you just not call and insist on texting? Yeah, and I've done that before. I've literally said, I'm, I won't be calling you, um, but let's text about it. And even I've gotten some calls before and I'm like, okay, I'm, and then I literally responded back saying, hey, what's up? Like, because I'm not answering, I wasn't answering the phone. So you know, again, you know, I, I do have some of those friends and I think folks have now recognized, like, it depends. Now I'm more likely to hop on the phone and be comfortable with it because, again, have had a lot more experiences in work, in personal. Um, so that's been the biggest, the biggest thing. So, so, Mary Jane, what do you do in a situation like that? What happens if you have one person who, you know, wants to talk on the phone, but the other party insists, as, as Dylan said, he used to do, uh, on texting? Well, one of the things that I encourage people to do if they want to practice these skills in a comfortable way 
is to let their friends and family know that they really do want to talk to them on the phone and book a time, a very specific time to have that phone call. So sometimes you have to warn people, I want to have this conversation and it needs to be a real time conversation and what works for you in terms of when you're available to talk to me on the phone. Well, that would just freak me out. Well, I, you know, I have daughters who like to text and they're not going to answer my call unless we've organized it ahead of time. So, Mary Jam, just curious, do you think it would end up working out OK if in the future I just texted my part of the show and Rob just <laughs> I'll, would, just, I'll no, read his text? Would, would that work? Yeah. I don't think so. I <laughs> oh. think that we really need this skill of having conversations with each other. All right. The thank other you. Thing that's, Yeah, you're welcome. No, no, go ahead. Very quickly. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the other thing that's frightening is that this is improvisational. Dylan's had to improvise. I've had to improvise. And that could be really scary if you haven't practiced. Mm. Well, I certainly understand that. Uh, Phone lady, uh, Mary Jane Cobb, also Dylan Bernard, a Gen Z, who has uh, suffered in the past from uh, phone phobia. I'm going to just text uh, for now on on the show. Don't text I'm not, me. I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to text. Yeah, I get nervous though reading your text. Well, I'm, I'm texting. I'm texting you now, actually. Yeah, I'm not going to read but it. But don't read it. No, don't read it on the air. Yeah, if it's important, you'll leave a voicemail. Yeah, no. That's it for uh, in depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.